Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is Thursday, the 3rd of May, 2012, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our special guests tonight are Buffy Hamilton and Kristen Fontichiaro. Welcome to both of you. We're glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us. I'm really delighted that you are here. Because there are two of you, uh, I will try and direct questions to each of you specifically so you don't feel like you're stepping on each other's toes. I didn't do a very good job there at the start, but I promise to do better. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, and we express our appreciation to Blackboard Collaborate for the use of this terrific room. Coming up, uh, my slides haven't finished downloading yet. <laughs> Tell me what's on the slide. <laughs> uh, Classroom 2.0 is celebrating its fifth anniversary. So this is really a lot of fun. This is the Ming Network. We started in 2007, 66,000 participants. Lots of fun in uh, this year with the things that we're doing. Specifically, we are uh, curating a book project not unlike the one we're talking about tonight. We've had 130 submissions. We're so excited we're publishing them all on the web. And then those that are the most popular, most downloaded, will be put into an actual book form, a physical book form. And that's very exciting for us. Okay, Peggy, what's on the next slide? <laughs> so if you're going to the ISTE conference, and we sure hope that you will consider doing so, uh, this is the tech conference of the year for those of us in that arena. We have a number of shadow events, events that are held by the audience and the crowd, and it's really a blast. And it includes the Saturday All-Day Unconference, which used to be called EduBloggerCon, and is now Social EdCon. It's the fifth year for that as well. This is really fun and exciting. We have now a new event on Sunday. It's a Global Education Summit for global educators and organizations to get together in an unconference format and really get to know each other and talk about things they care about. We have the Bloggers Cafe Monday through Wednesday. We have ISTE Live. If you've never presented at ISTE before, you didn't get accepted, we have a way for you to do that. Go to isteunplug.com and wait for the announcement about that coming up end of this month. Uh, lots more, lots of fun, just so much fun to be together uh, as a group. And we love the librarians who attend, so thank you for coming. Coming up on the future of education, even though I can't see the slide, um, Keith Devlin next week from Stanford University. Uh, after that, I think the week after, the, oh, this is the Social Learning Summit slide. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I can't see the slide. So the Social Learning Summit recordings are up and posted. That was on April 21st, thanks to Discovery Education. We have a number of other virtual conferences conferences this year, including the San Jose State University-sponsored Future of Libraries Conference, which should be of interest to folks here, which will be its second year, October 3 through 5. The Global Education Conference, which is November 12th to 16th. These are free worldwide virtual conferences, highly inclusive with a focus on participation. We don't just want people from other parts of the world being consumers. We want them to be collaborators and creators. So it's really a blast. Anyway, lots more coming up to any of the Web 2.0 Labs networks, Classroom 2.0, Library 2.0, or the like, and you'll get notified of all of these. Next week is Keith Devlin from Stanford University on the future of education. The week after that, Mark Bauerlein talks about his new book, The Digital Divide, which is essentially a debate on the 
um, on the issues related to the internet uh, with authors from both sides. Can't wait for that one. John Idelson on learning and e-portfolios. Elizabeth Merritt on the future of museums. Can't wait for that either. Anyway, there's lots coming up and lots more fun. Tony Wagner just committed to doing one in his new book on innovation. Uh, a number of other really fun guests in the wings. If you've missed any of our shows, they are all recorded and in full collaborate versions in an MP3. Go to futureofeducation.com. Larry Johnson, Tuesday, announced for the first time the uh, themes from the 2012 Horizon Report for K-12. That was really fun. Uh, that recording is up and well worth listening to, both to understand the process and the sort of what he's seen over the course of 10 years of these Horizon reports. Richie Norton talked about uh, resumes are dead, and that was really a blast. And his book after that went to f number one on the Kindle free list. I don't know that we can take credit for that, but we do hit a lot of people with our email, and so. We winked and smiled with him. Julie Lindsay and Vicki Davis talked to us about flattening classrooms. Uh, their incredibly encyclopedic book on global projects. It's just going to be invaluable. Anyway, lots more up there. Hopefully something that you'll find interesting. There's so much content these days. We don't really know how many people go back and listen, but hopefully there's something that you care about. I'm now going to give you permission to Tell us where you're listening from. Look for the icons to the left of your screen. You're looking for a star. Double click on that and then click on the map. It's fun to know the time and the temperature. I'm in the middle of a gorgeous day in Park City, Utah, where spring is in full bloom. Love the worldwide reach. Australia, New Zealand looks like Hawaii. Canada, United States. Lots of fun. So glad to have you with us. I have to tell you, I'm personally really, really looking forward to this show. Loved the book. Can't wait to talk about it. Now, one quick thing I want to do before we get there is I did set up a Mighty Bell space. This is the new beta version of Mighty Bell. For those of you who've seen Mighty Bell before, it, is, it has been reworked. The old one will still exist. But this is a curation and conversation site. And I started a space for school libraries. And is there anybody brave enough to allow me to send them a link? The only way to get into the beta is to have somebody invite you from within inside. So if there's somebody who's willing in the chat to put their email address in, I will invite you in. And then we'll ask those who would like to participate to put their email addresses in. And we'll have the inviter do it. So I'm going to look for the first email address that shows up. OK, Biblio, Biblio Blonde, you are going to be the inviter. I'm putting you in now. And all you do is click at the top right of your screen and enter the email addresses in. And you can click Send, and they'll be invited in. This is really a cool product. Full disclosure, I'm doing consulting for Gina like I did for, for Ning around education. But uh, I really love this product and love the concept. OK, so those of you who, uh, especially uh, a bibliobond who I just whom I just invited. Uh, if you take the top of your chat box and you pull it, click and pull, you can make your chat larger. 
and you can stretch it out and it makes it much easier to see the chat. Everybody may want to do that. But you are going to need to do that to gather those email addresses and send the invites. And you can't put them all in with commas in between and hopefully it won't be too much of a burden on you as we get started. So thanks for doing that. Look at all those. Well, you'll get it in your email, the blue blonde. So it'll come in your email, and then you can log in and, and start making those invites. OK, so uh, Buffy and Kristen, I really, really enjoyed this, as you can probably tell. Uh, was it as much fun for you, or was it a lot of work, or both? I didn't ask one of you. So Buffy, was it a lot of fun for you? You know, it really was a lot of fun. Um, at the same time, I will readily admit, there was work involved. Um, but really, you know, when you have such great content, um, you know, pouring in, it doesn't really feel like work. And it was just, for me, um, a great learning experience, really, to you know, read these different perspectives and ideas you know, as we were trying to crowdsource, you know, what, what uh, school librarianship um, can and may look like. Kristen? I have to agree. I mean, we had several days where we thought it was just like Christmas because we would get these, I mean, we were intentionally very short in the word count, but it made these little jewel pieces that were so powerful to read, and we got to be the first ones to read them. So it was really exciting to watch it come in, and also to see how many people were willing to um, make a contribution when there was no money involved, when there was no organization behind it, that it really was a um, from the ground up project. And I think too, it was a, you know, very humbling and, and yet energizing to see, you know, we all are so busy and you know, everyone's juggling uh, 101 things, but to see that, as Kristen said, people were willing to be so generous with their time, their insights, you know, their wisdom, their energy into contributing to this project from so many different you know, corners around the world. You know, I think that's what's most exciting to me. And, and Kristen knows this. You know, as these um, you know, submissions were coming in, I was really a little bit low on energy personally and professionally. And so you know, we would get these submissions, and for me, you know, to suddenly you know, see you know, this jewel come in, you know, to uh, your your inbox. Um, there were many many a days that you know the contributors gave me you know, a great you know little lift or a pick me up, and so um, I'm just grateful that uh, Kristen, uh, who really is the genius behind you know this kernel of an idea, um, allowed me to be part of such an exciting project and and just to be connected with so many great practitioners out there in the trenches as well as our folks who are uh, in other corners of uh, librarianship and not necessarily schools, but teachers, professors, people from um, who all kind of share, I think, that common interest in, you know, how do we, you know, make libraries um, relevant, you know, in, in this age and, again, what are the possibilities? That was just very exciting for me. There were several contributions where I just sat up and kind of wanted to shout yay. Um, and there were others that, that weren't as interesting to me. I, I think you were pretty inclusive as well in terms of your willingness to include a contribution, right? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that really motivated the two of us as we, as we talked about this was 
that we didn't want this to be the a collection of all the people who already get published talking about libraries. So we consciously made a decision that we would take every submission that came in unless it was mean-spirited. Buffy, how many copies have been downloaded? Looks like you're almost at 8,000. Kristen, I think um, who has access to the back end of that? Uh, yes, it's almost 8,000. Is that right? Yep, when I checked just beforehand, we were 37 copies away from 8,000 downloads. And what really blew us away about that is that's about how many people belong to the American Association of School Librarians, which is not, now it's 36, um, which is not an organization that, that has every librarian involved in it. So the kind of reach that a project with multiple contributors was able to get was um, pretty amazing. And I think it speaks a lot to the the social webs of the people who contributed. So Buffy, you and I have a tie on Library 2.0 that's probably worth pointing out. Uh, am I right? Weren't, weren't you the one who stepped up and helped keep it alive when Bill Drew uh, was leaving it? Um, I was one of the people involved. Uh, a friend and colleague of mine out in Los Angeles, um, Elizabeth Barbanel. Uh, was also, I think, um, a very key and active player uh, in that um, movement to keep it going. You uh, credit where credit is due. Kristen, uh, the introduction of the book uh, really has some fairly strong words. Um, the future of libraries, school libraries, and school librarians hangs in the balance. Um, did, did that reflect your own feelings as well as editors? Certainly part of the motivation for why we, we did this project, and, and in part because the American Association of School Librarians meets every other year, and this was going to be a conference year, we certainly felt, um, as, as we were thinking about this, that we were very close to a tipping point. We, we've seen what's happened in states like California and then Arizona. I'm in Michigan where um, the number of school librarians has dwindled quite a bit. And although I, I would say the majority of the cuts come from the fact that we're in a national recession and, and that the, those states have been hit much harder than some others, it certainly was. But if I remember right, that comes from David Lankus's introduction um, from Syracuse University. And I think that um, what was heartening about that was that um, he is a professor who has mostly looked not at school libraries, and so it was great to have that outside perspective, seeing that that was indeed the case, that it wasn't just our imagination, that that was what was happening. That was from David's introduction as, as different from the introduction the two of you make. But it did feel as though you chose or allowed that to be at the front of the book. And I thought that was kind of interesting, because uh, the words were straightforward. And uh, there is a sense toward the end of that introduction that uh, in terms of walking this walk, that you may actually uh, not be supported by those who are uh, in control typically over schools. And, and people may not understand the degree to which this message of learning and empowerment may actually be in opposition to the testing situation. Uh, Buffy, uh, was that OK with you to be sort of that frank at the beginning of the book? Um. 
we actually expected, yes, <laughs> that David would be that frank, and, and honestly, that's one of the reasons, you know, why we invited him, and, and um, I think, you know, many of you in the audience know, um, you know, in full disclosure, David's someone who's really influenced my thinking tremendously, and I think probably many of us in the audience. Um, but as Kristen said, you know, she and I have had many conversations over the last 12 months, you know, about you know, where we're at in the profession, where we're going, and so, you know, we felt like um, David was the person to really, I think, sort of set the tone uh, for, you know, this crowdsourced book, um, because this is a time that, you know, we do have to be bold, and I think we have to be willing, you know, to question all the things that we, we, we thought that we cherish and we've known about the profession and to really, you know, engage in a conversation about that and, and what, you know, our work may look like because certainly, um, and many of you in the audience will identify with this, you know, there are many of us, you know, we are the disruptors, um, you know, who are trying to break, if you will, you know, what Freire calls, you know, the pedagogy of the oppressed, this banking system of education that, you know, unfortunately has become uh, you know, so insidious, you know, under No Child Left Behind and now Race to the Top. We know that, that the possibilities for school are so much more than, you know, these standardized tests. Um, but we find as librarians, you know, because we are advocates for intellectual freedom and for inquiry-based learning, that's in direct opposition to what, you know, this new culture of schooling values. And so, you know, when you're working closely with teachers and you're involved in instructional design for lessons and research projects, you know, that really are um, more project-based learning and, you know, valuing inquiry um, and participation from students, um, you know, that sometimes then is seen as a threat, um, not only by your administrators but sometimes by other teachers because there's so such a culture of fear about test scores. Um, and, you know, what if we don't stay on the calendar? What if we're not teaching to the test? You know, then suddenly our shiny numbers on paper, you know, are in danger. Um, and so when you're the librarian and you're advocating for different ways of learning, um, honestly, there will be people who want to silence you because they see you as an agitator and maybe not being a team player because you're not acquiescing you know, to this, this culture of testing. Um, that I think, you know, just really devalues and marginalizes so many children in grades K through 12. So David, we know, is very fierce <laughs> and, and bold, and so um, we were very appreciative of his time and the contribution that he made. I, I thought it was the perfect opening to the book. Kristen, so uh, I love that answer from Buffy. As I read through the book, I felt as though it kind of exists at two levels. One is this sort of rallying cry to the choir of the value of the librarian, so perfectly suited to make a difference right now because of the internet. And that librarians have always had the opportunity to play this very unique role in terms of um, helping people become thinkers. And yet at the same time, it seems like there's sort of a shadow message in the book, which is we may have to convince our own fellow librarians about this in addition to, to convincing teachers, administrators, and parents. Is that true? 
That's certainly the, the legacy of the past 24 or 25 years. You know, the idea of a librarian as an instructional partner, or an instructional consultant, or an instructional um, peer with classroom teachers has been on the books for at least 20, 24 or 24 years. Um, and I think one of the difficulties we face, and, and Buffy talked about this on her blog a while ago, is how do we define librarianship and how do folks who maybe aren't part of a professional community of librarians define their role as a librarian and um, how do the outside folks communicate it. So we hear stories of, of classroom teachers who say we want to be librarians and their principal says, why would you throw your career away like that? So definitely there is tension inside the profession and there's tension outside the profession as well. Because if you think of the librarian as the bun-wearing, shushing, um, picture book reader, you know, in, in a recession that's, that becomes an expendable job. If you see a librarian who's doing what Buffy do, who's doing what the students who come through our program at Michigan do, um, we're looking for folks who are going to get right in the fray of things and be actively engaged in what it takes to make better learning experiences for students. And in fact, for those folks, books are often the, the, um, the lowest priority. Yeah, you're right about Madam Librarian. And you know, there's even discussion, is librarian the right term? I think in some school districts, if we went in and said, um, we think you should have someone who is embedded in the school, who knows students, who knows the, the curriculum, who knows pedagogy, who knows how information resources work, and can help you tame this, this crazy tsunami of the web, they would say, oh, we want that person. If you say, and that person is a librarian, it doesn't so much feel, there's often sort of a cognitive dissonance that goes on. So it is something that we actively, um, we're actively concerned about, is that very tension. Buffy, as you think about the changes we've seen in the last five years, especially with Ning and the other technologies that have allowed practitioners to gather together and begin the process of redefining their profession internally. Uh, are you seeing that make a big difference for where and how discussions take place about libraries and librarians? You know, I, I think so. You know, there's so the power of social media, you know, to amplify and enable access and, and participation in these conversations. You know, even for someone, you know, like myself, Kristen, and, and many others who are with us tonight, um, it, it never ceases to amaze me. Um, and it's just truly awe-inspiring to see how, you know, you can suddenly become connected not only to fellow librarians, but other people who share interests in teaching and learning um, and many of the, the same goals and, and the, a similar vision of learning that you do as, as a school librarian. Um, it really, I think, uh, provides just so many points of access. Um, and you know, it, it's out there. It's free. Um, and I think what's really exciting to me is that you know, five, ten years ago, these are voices that would not have been heard, um, and that it's empowering in the sense that you know, I think that for many people, as they do become connected, you know, they suddenly realize, wow, here's one way that I can participate. You know, maybe participating through a traditional means like a, a, a local or a state or a national organization might not be the best fit for them. But they can suddenly participate anytime, anywhere through Twitter or Facebook or through a Ning um, or through a webinar like this. 
And, you know, I, my hope is that I know for me it's, you know, helped me grow and learn and to really, I think, critically interrogate my practice to try to be organic. And I think that's what it's doing for, for so many others. And, and in and of that, that itself, I think that is how we take the initiative to retrain and retool ourselves. You, know, you don't necessarily have to go back and get another graduate degree. And I'm not discounting the power of that, um, because for me, my, my two graduate school experiences were fantastic at the University of Georgia. But you when know, I left there in 2005, I missed that community. And when I first got onto Twitter and started connecting with all of these amazing people that I would have never you know, known otherwise, it was really almost intoxicating. And it's still, you know, however many years later, is very energizing. And, and, that, and that's what we need. You know, we need these channels for people to participate and where you can step up. Um, and not necessarily wait for you know others that you 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 know, may think have all the answers. You know that's not true. You know we find you know solutions and answers together. So um, it is it's truly all inspiring. I think the, the power of social media to enable participation. So you grouped the contributions into ten categories, and and I even noticed that that was probably hard to do given some of the contributions. Um, Kristen, as you sort of think about it now in, in retrospect, after some number of months, um, would you have used the same heading categories? Have you thought of new ways of thinking about how those group together? Uh, not until this moment I haven't. Um, you know, it's interesting because we did pre-set the 10 categories and we consciously limited it to, to 10. And we consciously said there wasn't going to be a category called like the future of the librarian that we didn't want. Sometimes in our profession there's a little bit of a sense like all libraries are awesome, all librarians are awesome, everyone should love them. And we wanted to make sure we didn't get essays that were maybe more sort of abstractly celebratory than concrete in their details. So, um, so I'm glad we did that in retrospect. I think if there was maybe one thing that I, I would have liked to have seen would have been more discussion about not so much current practice, but what will we be like in 10 years. I think that the um, Evanston Lifer from um, Scholastic Library Publishing got to a piece of that. Um, but I think, I, would have, I think that the future visioning would have been um, maybe the next frontier of where we go. I pulled out several of the chapters that to me I would have identified uh, what I would call the learning agent or, or um, the learner as agent, where the learner sort of in charge and the theme of how libraries have, have created that environment. And there's a chapter called The Library's Last Stand and one called uh, The Last Hope for Preserving American Democracy. And, and you know, those are sort of dramatic titles. But they spoke to me about something really inherently valuable about the, the relationship between the adult and the student. I'm calling it the, the learner as agent. What would you call it, Buffy? And did that, does that occur to you as well as kind of a theme in the book? Yeah, I, I think so to some extent. Um, you know, right now, I, I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, what else I might call it. That's a good question. Um, but yes, I mean, I do think, you know, there are threads of that. And, you know, in thinking about, 
you know, your original question a moment ago to Kristen, you know, I think, you know, uh, an interesting, you know, possible follow-up, you know, to this kind of project, you know, might be to see if, you know, we have a collection that might be crowdsourced, you know, by students and teachers and administrators. Um, and certainly, you know, those, those individuals could have contributed to the initial work, but that's a perspective that I think, you know, we need to hear, you know, what do they see as library right now? What does that look like through their eyes? And, and what could it look like, as Kristen said, you know, if you're thinking about future visioning, you know, 10 years down the road? I also felt like there was a theme of modeling learning that uh, especially uh, Joanne DeGroote and her sandbox chapter and the importance of the librarian modeling the learning, not only sort of authentically being a learner, but modeling the learning process as well. Kristen, how important is that to you? It's hugely important. I remember when I was new at, at my school, my principal said, you know, you're just so curious about everything. You want to look everything up. And I said, well, that's how I perceive librarianship is that we should be modeling and we should be validating that for children. My niece and nephew are um, one about to go into kindergarten, one about into second grade, and their entire life at home revolves around curiosity and inquiry and what will happen if I try this and what will happen if I do that. And so I think librarians play a very important role for children in validating their interests beyond classroom interests. And it's not to say teachers do not also do that. Um, I would hope everyone would, but I think librarians who can validate that need for children um, do children a great service, and that's children of all ages. And just to piggyback on what Kristen said, you know, I think that's where you know we can look to the work of people, you know, like Henry Jenkins, uh, James G, you know, with um, affinity groups and passion-based learning that you know, the library can be that physical or virtual space where you know, we have learning communities forming you know, not just around you know, the curriculum and the standards, but as Kristen said, things that students care about or that they want to know about. Um, and I know that um, David Lank has just posted a webinar, I think he did this week, for the Tennessee Library Association uh, talking about this model of library, uh, a lending model versus a shared model. And in the shared model, it, it does create that culture more of crowdsourcing and being more um, uh, patron. And I know David hates that word patron, and I apologize. But you know, more in this case, yes, student-driven, um, and where they are taking more ownership of maybe the more um, kinds of informal but still very important kind of learning that's happening uh, through and in the library. So I'm not a librarian. Um, you know, I, I come at this with some humility. I did take over the Library 2.0 network because I knew how to manage a Ning network, not because I was a librarian. But it, it, the irony continues to sort of shock me that this is really the great thinking that that's being done around learning in the internet age, and yet it's not being supported or appreciated in a lot of quarters. Um, I want to move into some of the other essays that are in the book. Um, Kristen, uh, are there a couple that you've thought back on and are really glad they're in there? 
You know, one really has struck me as as having been um, memorable, and that was that a librarian emailed and said, I've done everything I can, but it's 850 words, and I can't take a single word out. And we had someone who was, because we were posting updates to the chapters um, as Google Docs that were publicly available, we actually had someone who had gone through and counted words and realized that we had come up a little bit um, long on one of the initial entries. And I said, like, it has to be 600 words. You know, it, we have to be fair. I said, if you want to send it to me, I could see if I could get it down to 600 words. So she sent it, and I opened it. And the minute I read it, I thought, I know exactly why this can't be under 850 words. And this is Shannon Hyman's essay, which I think is called You Had Me at Hello, which is all about how she um, she's doing some modeling about how they're going to do some research about um, about contemporary issues. And she gets them all going about should they be able to drive earlier. And she follows every instinct they have. Oh, do you think they should take a test to drive earlier? So let's go take the test. Now what do you think? And it was such, I mean, the energy just pulsed off the page. And eventually we got it down to, to 600 words. Um, and then she said, oh, I'm so glad because I've never written before. And I thought, how amazing that we did this sort of project, again, not affiliated with any institution. And it brought out a voice like this, a voice that has been so resonant for me. And my students use essays out of this book. And it's been resonant for them, too. And I thought this was a major reason why we wanted to do this book. One is we, we really felt like librarians were starting to feel sort of panicky about e-books and feeling um, kind of victimized by the way that the licensing is currently going. And we wanted them to see it as um, really being about, you can be a publisher as a librarian. Here's how easy it is. We didn't spend any money doing this project. Um, and the other was, we thought that we do feel there are really critical issues facing librarians. We, we have, as you said, this disconnect that we have all this discussion of how kids are interacting in the digital age and what are the, what are the pieces to that puzzle. And we have people who want to be part of that in K-12 schools. And the employment doesn't quite match the need. Um, so for me, that, that was the one that really kind of stuck. There, was all, there were also two others. Um, one was another author who had never contributed, who um, this is Beverly Rana, who talked about going to Sierra Leone and working with classroom teachers to build print collections, because I thought that gave us a really good sense of, um, and again, a first-time author, but a sense of, okay, um, America and your first world problems. Like this is what libraries mean in places where there is not the ubiquity of information access that we are sort of used to in the U.S. So that one was very special. And of course, um, I have a few of my students who are in the book. Um, so that was really special as well. Um, because whenever I do a project that has people from many parts of life in it, um, that is so much more fun to me than just, um, than just sort of going out. You know, I'm the only school librarian in, my, in the information school here. I, so I go it alone a lot. And it's much more fun to go it with people I know. And it's so fun to watch. Um, to watch this conversation and for us to recognize names of people we have collaborated with but never met, or people we have collaborated with and met. And that's been, so all of that um, energy together has been really exciting. So, okay, so that's the end of my answer. I just read Peggy George's comment about uh, imagine the conversations you could have around every chapter in this book. And I had this brainstorm. Uh, uh, is there a name? You're certainly welcome to use Library 2.0, but you may have another favorite one where you could actually ask the authors to post each of their contributions as a forum discussion to allow conversation around them. That would be fun. 
Buffy, what about you? Do you have some favorites? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that, I mean, they all, I think, were, had meaning for me in some way. Um, but I think the one that maybe resonated with me the most was the one from Wendy Stevens. Um, and I think because what Wendy was really getting at um, in her essay uh, or her submission was really about, you know, the library and, and critical pedagogy. Um, and that's something that's, I think, very close to my heart. <laughs> um, and it just, it was so moving, um, I think, for me on a professional and personal level. Um, that was the one, I think, that, that stood out for me personally. So the uh, first section in the book is learning. And I love that you started with learning. And I'm guessing that was a pretty conscious decision. Um, and I really liked um, the, the Shannon Hyman's as well. Um, and the whole idea of using the existing media to engage and to, to, um, to actually sort of mirror that practice with students, which again felt to me like a theme in the book. Uh, you go then to who and what we teach, emerging in multiple literacies, and then gaming was fascinating for me, especially Neil uh, Krasnov's on chess. Uh, did either of the two of you shepherd the gaming section, or did you work on it together, Kristen? And uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how, how those fell out. It was completely at the choice of the contributors. There were different um, Google Forms depending on what topic you were interested in. So although, and I think that was actually a section that could have been developed even further. Um, I agree with you. I really like Neil's essay. Um, he's a great blogger as well. And yes, he is at Dallas ISD. He's at the um, a high tech high there. He's the only, he's one of the very few librarians who works in a high tech high. Um, and the, what I also think is interesting is one of the contributions came from um, a furniture supply company. We have um, a library furniture vendor here in Ann Arbor. And I sort of cold called and said, um, we're working on this. Would, would you consider contributing? So I really, because I really wanted us to recognize that everybody has a stake in school libraries, including, and, and including vendors who are often left out of that conversation, but who often can cross-pollinate ideas across libraries in powerful ways. I did enjoy hearing from a vendor. He's a furniture vendor, as I recall. Um, Kimberly Hirsch talks about learning in a social context, which really spoke to me. So then when I got to the reading section, I really expected more on social reading. And maybe I didn't read it closely enough. But it feels to me like this is a huge topic right now. And, and Buffy, I'm also curious about the fact that reading itself has been suspect in different time periods. What's happening now with the internet with regard to reading? And, and how do you think uh, things will change? And how do you think they won't? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, yeah, I think obviously the answers remain to be seen as you know, time passes and, and research, uh, I think, emerges. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, reading is such a very personal thing, and I think you know, one medium or one way that you know, may work great for one person might not be you know, such a great fit for another, and I think that's why we, I think we have to be conscious of that when we're thinking about our collections and, and avenues of access to different kinds of texts, whether it's informational, fiction, you know, whatever uh, the genre might be. 
Um, and also, too, thinking about you know, the needs of, of children as readers. Um, I think some people very much enjoy those social aspects of reading. Um, you know, they might enjoy you know, being part of a book club, or maybe they're networking with others through Goodreads or, or you know, annotating their notes, maybe you know, in, in Kindle. But for other people, you know, they may prefer a much more solitary kind of reading experience. And so, um, you know, I think that as librarians, that that's sort of what I, I guess I'm keeping in mind. Um, but certainly, you know, trying to provide access to text in as many formats as we can. And for me, different kinds of, you know, learning needs, um, I think, has to be our focal point um, and, and respect the needs of those readers and not necessarily try to, to force um, or pigeonhole children into to one medium or container. Kristen, what are your thoughts on that? At a moment of typing something. Uh, come back to me in a minute. Peggy, Peggy, I think, gets the award for light bulb ideas of the day. She's saying, could the chapters be made into audio podcasts? And I also love their idea of putting them somewhere where there could be conversation. We'd be delighted to do that for you in Library 2.0 or support you somewhere else. But for me, that would be a really interesting experiment in social reading, which is the ability to hold that conversation around the topics. Um, I know that I'm doing much more reading than I ever have, and my family is as well by virtue of having access to books both electronically and physically. Uh, Buffy, uh, I'm guessing Kristen is still typing away, but um, is that true for you? And are you seeing that reflected in the students, or is there a disconnect? Are some people reading more and others reading less? You know, it's hard for me to say if you know access to, to e-readers is increasing or decreasing you know, students' reading time. I do know, you know, Within my own library, and we've been circulating Kindles and Nooks, and you know, for many students, that has been a very empowering experience. In that, um, you know, especially for the kids who are fans of certain authors or series, you know, suddenly, you know, they're not having to carry home ten pounds of books, um, but yeah, they have it on that one device, and they can read to their heart's content. They can read in bed at night. Um, our teens tell us they love reading in bed at night because they've asked for. Um, e-readers either with the reading lights or to be backlit. <laughs> um, you know, for me personally, um, it, it still comes and goes in spurts. Um, I love reading on my iPhone. Um, I love reading on my iPad. Um, I find that I do tend to read more fiction on the iPad and iPhone than I do more than nonfiction. But it ebbs and flows because, um, you know, I think like everyone else, you know, I have periods in my life that I'm completely swamped and crushed and unfortunately I have no energy at night to, to read more than maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And then other times, you know, it's just almost, you know, like you're on a voracious binge um, and I'll knock out three or four books within a couple of days. So. I don't know that that may be different for other people. For me personally, um, I you know I do like having access you know, to my books and um, especially my fiction in a, an e-reader format. But um, I don't know that it's necessarily altered you know my reading life tremendously, or at least not at this point. But something interesting I have observed with our students, and many of you may have too. Um, Many students like the aspect of privacy, um, that other people can't see the books that they're reading. And so I think in some ways it maybe gives them freedom to explore genres that otherwise they might be maybe embarrassed 
for their peers to see. But it's also been interesting, uh, this spring uh, we uh, used a set of nooks with a group of pretty reluctant readers who were ninth graders, uh, primarily boys. And uh, the teacher gave them some choices and they voted on Monster by Walter Dean Myers based on some of the preview materials she'd given them. And so they came to the library and initially the plan was they were just going to read them in the room, but if they decided they wanted to take it home, they could just come by and get permission form and then take it home. And the, you know, the first day they came to the library, you know, I offered the permission forms and, you know, they were kind of tough out. oh, I don't need that. And it was interesting to see that literally within two days, uh, about a dozen of these same boys came back and wanted the permission forms to take them home, and they did. Uh, and at the end of the book, uh, I forget now why, but Mrs. Frost, their teacher, she actually had the, the print book in, in the room, and they asked her, Mrs. Frost, what book is that that you're reading? And she said, well, that's the book you just read by Walter Dean Myers. And they were astonished that they had read a book that size. They were like, no way, Mrs. Ross. And she said, yes, this is it. And it's been interesting to see that some of those students have come in and either asked to continue to check out the Nook or, you know, they want to do, do we have a print copy? You know, maybe something else by Walter Dean Myers. So, you know, at least what I've seen with my students, um, you know, whose who schedule is, is also very busy, but a little bit different from as an adult. I think for many of our students, it has been empowering. Or for some who maybe were never reluctant readers, but they just got busy, maybe it's, I think, for some of our students, been a medium for them to kind of rediscover reading again and fall in love with it and make a little more time for that in their lives. We've talked about this on the show before, but I read faster on my phone than I do a physical book, and I think it's a tracking issue. So I love reading fiction, but I on my device, but I want a physical book when I want to make notes. And so there's a big distinction for me. I've also read something recently that the lighting that you get from these devices, I guess maybe not a Kindle, but some of the other devices, actually makes it harder for you to sleep. So they don't recommend using them before bed. Um, I want to go to Q&A, which I'm not really very good about usually, but I want to make sure people can ask questions. We have a good audience and lots going on there. Um, before we do, Kristen, uh, Kathy Jo Nelson wrote a post called Ten, or a, a chapter called Ten Reasons a School Library and Certified Librarian Are Vital to Schools. I loved it, and I was interested in one thing that was missing for me. Now, again, not being a librarian, but having been influenced by librarians. It feels to me as though the the librarian has a unique opportunity to build a relationship with a student which is less compulsory or compliance oriented and much more kind of um, a relationship of empowerment and agency. Am I, am I um, building that up to be too much or is that something really unique to librarians? Um, I think it's easy for us as librarians to say that we are the people who do that. I think that's where um, we talked about Bill Ferreter in the comments. He's really pushed back on that. And because I spend part of most of my time with librarians, but I also go over to the School of Ed and I work with pre-service teachers there, it's very clear they feel the same way about students and empowerment um, that we do. So I think what the difference is, is the, the kinds of constraints that teachers are feeling and the kinds of anxieties that they're feeling. I mean, clearly, we spend more time in the information space, so it's often faster for us to find information than it may be for a classroom teacher. I just I want to be cautious about saying, though, that 
the teachers don't have it. I think that's actually what is upsetting teachers quite a bit is that they're not able to use their sort of emotional intelligence as much as they'd like to um, in in their work with kids and that that is really being stripped out because numerical data seems to be the only currency that matters right now. And, and okay, so we have, oh, go ahead, Buffy, go. Yeah, I was just going to just uh, uh, you know, echo what Kristen said. You know, I think whatever role, you know, or whatever title, if you will, that we carry in our, our school, you know, librarian, classroom teacher, counselor, administrator, graduation coach, you know, whoever it is, you know, I think, you know, establishing positive relationships, you know, with students, you know, is essential in any of those, you know, learning spaces that, you know, if you don't gain their trust, um, then really, I, I, you know, it's difficult, I think, to create a learning environment that's going to be meaningful for them and where they feel like, you know, they can take risk as learners. And so, um, you know, I think everybody struggles with that. You know, we're seeing larger class sizes, as Kristen said, you know, in, in many places, uh, learning has become so um, quantified, if you will, that, you know, I think uh, ed educators in general not, uh, you know, feel like that is being, being squeezed out. Um, but I think, you know, there are ways that we all, whatever our role is, that, you know, that we can work together as a team to give children, you know, that, that emotional space, if you will. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't think that's a, a unique kind of thing that we necessarily own or, or should own by any means. I'm laughing at some of the chat comments uh, because we're robots now. Okay, so uh, we do have some time here for Q and A. Uh, if you have a question for Buffy or Kristen, would you feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand? To raise your hand, you click on the third icon over at the top of the participant window, and I'll give you the microphone. If I if you put a question in the chat and I've missed it, which is quite likely, feel free to uh, post it again. Uh, I apologize for, for that, but it's hard for me to, to catch everything that's there. So while we're waiting, Kristen, uh, in the final section, there's collaboration section and there's a section on professional learning. And I loved uh, Erica McWilliams' uh, uh, I think she's quoted in one of the chapters as talking about the concept of flockmates. Uh, that would be sort of your personal learning network. That was the first time I heard that phrase. Is that a phrase that you've used before? She wasn't one of our American contributors. <laughs> so I assumed that it came across one of our many ponds to get to us there. But that's actually one of my favorite sections too. It was originally going to be two different sections, one on learning networks and one on professional development. And it made sense as the book went on to, um, to put them together. Buffy, Hamish wants to know what's yet to come. I guess what are you working on now? Well, that's a timely question for me. Um, for me personally, um, our district is um, undergoing library staffing cuts. We, um, all of our schools in our district lost our library clerks two years ago. And we've learned in the last six or so weeks that um, at four of the six high schools, the second full-time librarian position is being eliminated. So um, now four of the high schools will have one full-time librarian. And then there will be a floater librarian uh, share between each of those pairs, if you will, uh, roughly two, two and a half days a week. 
Um, so, you know, that obviously means that there has to be a conversation, you know, with our faculty and our administration about, um, you know, what's going to change and where do our energies need to go. Um, and that's actually a, a very lengthy conversation I just had with my new principal yesterday for about an hour and a half, which was uh, very exciting for me um, to see that, you know, we're on the same page and making sure that my time and energy is put into the things that have the most impact um, on student learning, and that is my role as an instructional partner um, in the building. And so, for me, what initially seemed like a very bleak um, and, quite frankly, kind of depressing <laughs> kind of scenario, um, I'm really now starting to see it as an opportunity to rewrite my job description and to maybe be liberated in a way, um, you know, by this to be able to now devote more of my time and energy you know, into the focal point that I've tried to always privilege, and that is you know, as a teacher um, and as a learner you know, with my students and faculty. So um, that remains to be seen. And uh, that's a journey that I'm really excited to be starting on for the next 12 months, is you know, re-envisioning what my practice is going to look like and what the possibilities for that can be to make um, a positive impact in my school. Kristen, um, has any, uh, in the collection development section, I meant to bring this up, has anybody experimented with crowdsourcing and tagging as a way of um, producing a collection index in a library, more than just the educators? Reindexing or reconfiguring, but actually having an active system for tagging. That would be a great question at the public library level for Chris Harris um, from Upstate New York. Um, I can say that there are some public libraries who are experimenting with layering that sort of folksonomy work on top of um, their traditional catalog. Um, Eli Nyberger at our own Ann Arbor District Library has been very active in that and has really worked with how to make um, those kinds of activities game-like. Um, and that practice is being adopted by some other libraries. Um, Darien Library in Connecticut is also experimenting with that. Um, and of course, we're also we're very lucky in Ann Arbor to have the super patron, Ed Vilmetti, who also has been really engaged in this idea of, of how we, um, how mostly public libraries can um, have those experiences. I, having been an elementary librarian, of course, um, there, the challenges to doing that with certain age groups are issues of in, you know, inconsistency in spelling or not fully developed vocabularies of young children. So um, it, right now is a project that I think sits a little better in the public library setting. But I would highly recommend um, that you go to aadl.org, which is the Ann Arbor District Library, and poke around at the games that they play. Um, because it certainly has captivated the interest of lots of kids um, as it started as an alternative to their summer reading program. So I'll put a link in and you guys can take a look. See, uh, what about the library as maker space or a tinkering area? Um, is that happening? It was hard for me to imagine, but more and more I hear that being talked about. Well, I think right now the public library space is where you know, a lot of that buzz and, and conversations happening. Um, 
and uh, the name escapes me at the moment, uh, Free Freemanville. I'm, I'm I'm royally fumbling this, but it was uh, featured on um, I think it was the Hack Librarian uh, blog, and I know it was circulating on Twitter um, as a Syracuse grad. Um, who uh, there was a great article about that whole concept. Um, I think the U Media Lab um, in Chicago, the Chicago Public Library, um, even though it's a little bit more sort of uh, digitally oriented, is also a, a library space that's focused on, I think, tinkering and creating content. And so um, I think you know, this is kind of goes back to something you, you asked earlier you know, in the conversation tonight about uh, social media and networking and learning with other librarians. You know, I think it's important that you know we don't stay in our own silo of just school librarians. That you do need to diversify your network. And I'm you know especially grateful to be connected to a lot of our special public and academic librarian colleagues who, even though they're in you know different contexts, a lot of their practices, you know, ideas that I borrow and try to translate into how it could look, you know, in the school library and vice versa. Um, but I think our public library colleagues right now are leading the way, and you know, I think it's exciting to see, you know, how could we now maybe take that and um, adapt that. And um, quick shameless plug, you'll get to read a little bit more about that in the September-October issue of Knowledge Quest. Um, we have someone writing for us for that issue um, who will be talking about uh, participation in library as makerspace. It's been a blast. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, Buffy or Kristen, if one of you would put the link to uh, downloading the book, I think the Smashwords link, in the chat, we'll make sure that people uh, know that. Uh, if you did not put your email address in for the Mighty Bell space for conversation on this, please do so in the chat, and I will do all that inviting after the show is over. Uh, that's just a, a content and curation space that we're playing around with. Uh, I'm going to clap for the both of you. It's the applause icon that sits under the smiley face. It's hard to find there in the participant window. But thank you both so much for coming on. Thank you for this book, for modeling the learning, for creating a crowdsourced activity. Uh, it's brilliant at so many levels. I think you're both to be congratulated. And thanks so much for both the book and coming on the show. Thank you for inviting us, Steve. We appreciate it. We want to say a special thank you. Anytime we do any kind of contributed volume, um, there are editors who get their name on the cover, but the real guts of the book come from the contributors. And there are people in this um, chat who have contributed to this book or to other projects that make it possible. So we're so grateful. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks so much. That was a wonderful hour. Love the book. Love the guests. School libraries, what's now, what's next, what's yet to come. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm going to turn the recording off. And uh, we do have to, to kick you out of the room for the recording the process. But that recording will be up tonight or tomorrow morning. Thanks to Buffy and Kristen. Thanks to you all for attending. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Bye now. <laughs>